Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies, and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 124 of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian, the silent observer, Gottlieb. Explain. I have worked very hard in my life, Jerry, to eliminate jealousy. I don't think it's a super useful emotion. Like, it's just something that kind of nags at you and leads you to really not feeling good about yourself and kind of being uh, dismissive of of other people's experiences. So I, I really work hard to make it not part of my repertoire. And I was so jealous this past weekend of literal everyone who was involved with the Mythic Invitational, from the players to the people who were there in the arena watching, to the commentators getting to call the event. I just felt this real serious, real intense jealousy. And I feel kind of bad about it, honestly. But it's like, I kind of want to drop the first F-bomb in the history of the game podcast. It's just like, fuck, this is what we have been waiting for. (laughs) I mean, this is the thing we've been yelling about and screaming into the internet for what feels like 10 or 15 years now, like just begging for Magic Online upgrades so it could be presented in this fashion. And all the people who would naysay, no, Magic isn't interesting to watch. It doesn't make for a good viewing experience. No, it just requires effort and it requires clean presentation and requires you to invest and commit to the product. Look, there were absolutely flaws with this Mythic Invitational, 100%. The format was kind of god-awful, and there were some hiccups very early on. And your match, which just ended out of nowhere, was like my head exploded on the spot. But on the whole, this was an incredible, incredible step forward for Magic. And I feel really good for whoever like the stakeholder is within WotC who's been fighting for this forever, because you know there is one, right? Like The people in WotC aren't blind. They knew how important esports where you know there was someone who was just begging to corporate please please let's invest in this let's make this happen let's compete with hearthstone and league of legends it can work and we're being naysayed the whole time and finally got their chance and they kind of hit it out of the park in a lot of ways like a hundred thousand viewers that's crazy honestly man it might be a lane chase whoever it is deserves all the credit in the world and i'm very happy for them and i'm happy for us as magic players like what an incredible weekend just overall the the trailer for war of the spark was like the fifth most trending video on youtube or something preposterous and again they kind of hit it on the park with that one too uh i think a lot of that is actually just secretly that cover is kind of gas and (laughs) it's carrying a lot of the load (laughs) no i mean i i I think there's a lot of emotion involved in the trailer too, which is, which isn't something that you normally see while when it's like, Oh, well like here's our, you know, return to Ravnica and everything. And it's like, you see all the stuff that's going on, but there's not a story to be told. And I think that that's a big part of this where it's like, this is the culmination of like, you know, 10 years of story or something. See, I have no investment in the story, but something about the imagery and the way it was portrayed and just like the solemnness of it all 
definitely hit in the moment. And I had goosebumps for sure. And I'm generally not affected by magic story in that way whatsoever. So uh, yeah, real, real big weekend for magic. And I, I don't know, I was happy I got to watch it. And like I said, I was jealous, but at the same time, it's just like, proud of my game, right? Because this is like, this is my life in a lot of ways. I'm very invested in the success of Magic, both personally and just emotionally. I want it to be great. And this was one of the biggest steps forward in a very long time for the game, I think. I agree. I think everyone this weekend did a really good job, uh, especially the commentary team. I -hmm. think that Alias V and Dave Williams were like two pretty big standouts. Yeah, uh, especially, I mean, we know what it's like to kind of have your first shot at it, right? Like it's it's hard and it's intimidating and there's so many things you don't quite understand yet. And then once you get comfortable, you can be yourself and get your flow going. And I think that's where we are now. But you think back to our first show and like we did it in front of 20 plus thousand people, which was still intimidating, but they had to do their first show in front of 100,000 people and they both nailed it. They were fantastic. Well, Dave, Dave has chops. He's he's already done that before, you know. Of course. Uh, so I wasn't uh, too concerned with him. If if anything, the the broadcast just like hammered home a reminder to like, oh man, like you know this dude's good. And I I know that Dave wants to keep playing in the tournaments, you know, like that is his passion. But like if if he would consider doing commentary full time, like I would be all about that. Oh yeah, without a doubt. And it was good to see Brian back around again. Obviously, it's been a while since he's been fully committed to Magic and, you know, a professional at this point, stepped right in, did fantastic. Day 9 has old school internet clout been around forever. So they really put together a great team. They treated it like a very, very special event and it felt like a very special event. And also, I have never, ever in all my years watching Magic, and I've watched a lot of Magic, I've never physically jumped out of my seat before watching a game of Magic. And the semifinals, when Canister top-decked that lightning strike, I literally jumped in the air. Like, it was intense and a very, it had that feel of like an emotional sports moment, 100%. Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with the lack of downtime, you know, where if you're watching like a paper match, it's like there's generally like a lot and a lot of buildup, even though when it comes down to like one last draw step or whatever, and then Mm -hmm. arena, like everything happens so quickly, right? Yep. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So so there's not a lot of time for that momentum to just like kind of dissipate. So I I do think that that's a big part of it too. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just incredible. What a difference, a clean, snappy interface that everyone could follow. Even my wife who knows only the bare basics of magic. She understands basically lands tap for mana. And that's about as far as it goes. But she was able to watch some coverage and like take something from it and found it interesting. And, you know, a huge portion of that is just finally having a platform that presents information clearly and in a snappy fashion. And it was awesome. I can't wait to see more arena broadcasts for sure. I was hoping you were going to say she understands that that lands tap for mana and that primeval Titan is God. And she was asking, no, like, we why haven't isn't gotten it, there yet. Why yeah, isn't anyone playing amulet? What is wrong with them? <laughs> she just sees me sitting around shuffling my amulet deck all day. No, we, we haven't gotten to that step yet. Maybe someday. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. I could talk about this weekend a lot, but I don't know. I, I think there are a few problems inherent in that, which we already have. Uh, were the spark previews going right. on and Too everything so it's it's kind of old hat we went we went with this pretty sick one-two punch where you know went invitational into trailer both of those things i think got people really hyped up and now we have 85 preview cards to talk about so we should probably just get into it 
Yeah, we're going to have to. If anyone wants to talk more about this, you know, when we're in Cleveland this weekend, SCG Cleveland, feel free to come up and chat. I would love to hear everyone's opinion on this event. But yeah, really, really special weekend for Magic. Yep. Uh, One thing worth noting uh, is that there was another leak. And while that is horrible for, for all the stuff that Wizards has been doing, I think that this preview season specifically was like another it was like the third step in like this very meticulous planned out thing mm-hmm. where every every single card was going to get previewed by a human. And the fact that uh, some of these leaks happened and they're like high impact cards, too. And it just means that the people who were going to be able to preview these cards basically have like a lot of their thunder stole from them. And it probably does a lot to actually ruin wizards whole marketing campaign thing which sucks but seeing as how they are out there uh we are going to talk about them i don't see a whole reason to just like ignore them and pretend that they're not there when they very clearly are yeah it's super unfortunate and i definitely feel for those people but ultimately i think we have a responsibility to our listeners to prepare them for Week one tournaments that starts with analyzing these cards as much as possible, as early as possible. Uh, if you want to avoid non-official spoilers, we won't begrudge you if you want to sit out the rest of this cast. But we have to talk magic. We have to talk strategy. And that involves talking about these cards. I am very disappointed that like a wrench got thrown in the wheels here. But what can you do? You know, we got to move forward. It especially blows because everything else seemed to be going so well, you know, and then it's just like, oh, man, like this again. Like, why does this crap keep happening? I know I I don't have an answer for you. Uh, It is disappointing. I was enjoying the slower rollout, but we kind of have like what an extra 15 or so cards, I think, that have gotten out ahead of schedule now. Yeah, I, I think it's something around 10 because some of the ones that were, quote unquote, leaked had actually been officially previewed. So, okay, okay. Well, we're going to start with some black cards. Uh, first up, Liliana, Dreadhorde General, 4BB, 6 starting loyalty, Legendary Planeswalker Liliana, and all of the Planeswalkers in this set have a static ability, and Liliana's is, whenever a creature you control dies, draw a card. She also has a plus one ability that is, create a 2-2 black zombie creature token, minus four, each player sacrifices two creatures, And minus nine, each opponent chooses a permanent they control of each permanent type and sacrifices the rest. So here we have a set loaded with Planeswalkers, which if you've listened to any of these we've done in the past, we have both clearly, clearly identified as the hardest possible cards to evaluate in the preview season. It's just very difficult to understand a Planeswalker until you've had it on the battlefield, until you've really felt its effect on the game. And I don't think any of these are going to be an exception because not only are they planeswalkers an inherently difficult type to evaluate, but they have this new thing going on, these new static abilities. And that throws more complications at us. But despite all that, I am comfortable saying Liliana is kind of a slam dunk. That powerful, expensive planeswalker trope, things like Vraska Relic Seeker, Uh, Liliana very much lives up to those kind of predecessors. And this is just game over in a lot of spots. I I talked a little bit about Liliana in my article today. If you're playing an early game that involves dealing with your opponent's creatures and then you've dealt with them effectively and slam Liliana, it's going to be very, very hard for them to catch back up at that point. Yeah, I definitely agree. And one of the things that makes Planeswalkers very difficult to actually evaluate is, you know, you mentioned 
having to get them onto the battlefield and like actually see what happens. And part of the the rationale of like why it's so hard to evaluate them is that you never really fully understand like what the decks are going to look like and what the threats are going to look like. And being able to protect these planeswalkers is obviously a very big part of their power level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if there's like a bunch of like haste flyers and burn spells and things that just remove the planeswalkers outright, like these are things that can totally change the dynamic of whether or not like a planeswalker is like strong or weak in any given format. So, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about these generally and maybe talking about specific threats that are very good about against planeswalkers or whatever. But yeah, for, for the most part, I expect us to get a lot, a lot of these wrong. Yeah, it's tough. It's it's just a huge challenge. I just keep thinking about the play pattern, though, of like Liliana plus it now sets a seven loyalty. You have a blocker. And if you chump block, you draw a card. And that's kind of an incredible position to be in to say nothing of the fact where you're just like against Sultai, right? And they have a Hydroid Crisis and a Jade Light Ranger in play. And you just play this in minus. And now it's like, okay, Vraska's Contempt or lose. Those are my options, kind of. Like, you really have to take uh, immediate action against Liliana. And that's what a six mana planeswalker needs for sure. Right. I, I like Liliana as kind of like the Elspeth Sons Champion type of role where it's like you you just drop this, clean up the board, and then you have this big threat that they actually have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And I could also see this in a curved hopper of just like some some creature-based deck. Like the the static ability is actually really good for Sultai, you know? And right. you, you've you've seen those decks play like Midnight Reaper before, and they've they've certainly played their fair share of six drops between like Carnage Tyrant and Frasca and stuff like that. So Liliana, I think, is very strong and is gonna find a lot of homes. The the one weird thing to me is the ultimate, where it doesn't strike me as a thing that actually wins the game. And I think it's gonna be mostly like the the first three abilities that are very relevant, but they are very, very relevant. I mean, look, you're talking about that's not going to come online until turn eight, turn nine at the very earliest. That's with some acceleration. And that's restricting your opponent to one mana at that stage of the game. That's pretty backbreaking. It is unless you're behind, right? Unless they have like a, a wide variety of different permanents. Like okay. Liliana doesn't necessarily clean that stuff up. That's kind of what I'm worried about. But yeah, obviously, if if you have like a planeswalker and an artifact and a creature against an opponent with no board, like, yeah, that's game over, obviously. Hmm. And I, I feel like these black mid-range decks can almost certainly maneuver into that sort of situation. And uh, any sort of Armageddon is probably going to be game over when you're ahead, but it is weird. Well, it's, it's one-sided. It's not both players. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I I read that as each player. Okay. No, each opponent. Yep. 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 Fair enough. Yeah. Getting your opponent while also keeping all of your stuff that, that is probably game. Yeah. It's, it's a cataclysm, essentially, a one-sided cataclysm, and that's a legacy playable card. Right, and, and that's kind of what I read it as, as cataclysm, but mm. it's it's not. It's, it's Yeah, it's just opponent. Yep. See, and this is another thing. This is a thing that's going to happen, where I it's know. like, you don't, you don't play with these cards, you misread them, and I even read it out loud, you know? Yeah, I mean, we assume cards work a certain way. When you play as much magic and think about magic as much as we do, we shortcut so many things, right? And we just say, okay, this must work in this fashion because it's always worked in this fashion. And then we realize somewhere along the line, like, oh, crap, we've completely misevaluated this card and read it wrong. I mean, how many times did I read Crackling Drake before I actually understood that it was still getting power from cards also in exile? Like, it just didn't click with me forever. Yeah. It's just one of the quirks of having a magic-focused brain, I think. 
Rekindling Phoenix was the most recent one for me where I didn't realize that it gained haste when it came yeah. back. Yeah. And it says it right and on the card. You should know, but it just doesn't click right away. Yeah, exactly. All right. We're, we're kind of going by color here. So next card is Dreadhorde Invasion. This is 1B Enchantment. At the beginning of your upkeep, you lose one life and amass one. And amass is put a plus one, plus one counter on an army you control. If you don't control one, create a zero, zero black army creature token first. And whenever a zombie token you control with six power or greater attacks, it gains lifelink until end of turn. So a lot of these words are very similar to Bitter Blossom. Mm -hmm. And I think Ross, Ross Merriam wrote a pretty good article uh, about this today on Star City about how, you know, this card goes tall effectively instead of going wide. And certainly if you have ways to, you know, sacrifice your smaller armies, like you can make use of the fact that it will spit out a new token every turn. But other than that, you're just kind of like building this big animal. And then once you get it up to six power, maybe just with Dreadhorde Invasion or with some other amass cards, then you get your life back, which is pretty nice. Yeah, going tall is pretty bad. Like it's not really a constructed viable strategy to invest all your resources in one thing. So that's got some flaws. But like you said, I do think you can convert this into like an instant value engine with things like say, like Priest X, Judith Dex could use this very well. If there's other sacrifice outlets, maybe that'll play. So I'm kind of low on this card. I think it's a very niche role player. It's certainly so, 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 so much worse than Bitter Blossom, uh, not even in the same range, but it's got some neat quirks to it. And I think it's a card you can work around and have it fill a role for a specific kind of deck. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit higher on it than you are, I think, but that is because I basically just want it to be good. So I'm trying to think of like the situations where it would be good. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. It's it's one of those things where it's like, is is multiples of this actually good or is it bad? Because, you know, you're you're growing your thing very quickly. And if you have any of the other like reasonable amass cards in the set, like you can get a thing to six power pretty quickly. And even if they deal with it, it's like, OK, well, like next turn, you're you're just going to have like a two, two, then a four, four, whatever. So I don't know. I, I feel like this card is likely pretty good and we'll see play, but it is definitely, definitely not Bitter Blossom. It could be other amass payoffs make this much better than it currently reads too. So I'm waiting to see right. what those are. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not like off this card. I think it has potential. It's just not like instant slam dunk. Uh, we're gonna have to work for it. Yep. Next card is Liliana's Triumph. One B instant. Each opponent sacrifices a creature. If you control a Liliana Planeswalker, each opponent also discards a card. Strictly better diabolic edict. Are you kidding me? Did not think that was a card we were going to see. Like. It's not that I ever thought Diabolic Edict was too good for standard, but it had just been so long. So my opinion was that someone who understood better than I did thought Diabolic Edict was too good for standard. And just apparently not, because here's better Diabolic Edict hitting this set. This is a key card. This effect, anything resembling this effect is always good. If you remember Devour Flesh, that was a key card in the format. This is just better. And if you find some way to take advantage of the upside too it goes kind of bonkers. Like this is very, very efficient. This is an upgraded legacy playable card. And also this gets played in legacy, by the way, because a lot of those same Diabolic Edict decks are just playing Liliana as it stands. So they're going to be very right. happy to see this card. So yeah, this is a, a actual legacy slam dunk. As someone who spent a lot of like time and effort trying to acquire Japanese Diabolic Edicts, I'm kind of mad, but... Yeah, effort wasted. 
<laughs> at the same time, I, I'm I play a lot of a lot of black mid range in standard generally, so I will likely be registering this card a lot. I'm sure. Yeah, very very powerful effect. Next card is Bolus's Citadel, three BB legendary artifact. You may look at the top card of your library anytime. You may play the top card of your library. If you cast a spell this way, pay life equal to its CMC rather than pay its mana cost and tap, sacrifice 10 non-land permanents. Each opponent loses 10 life. This one's easy because it's broken or it does nothing. And that's obvious on its face. And that means it's been tested to death. So it's probably just cute and standard. As far as vintage goes, this card might actually be the truth, like in vintage. I don't know if that stretches back to legacy or not. I have to think a little bit more. But being able to tinker this out might be pretty broken. But a lot of things are broken in vintage, and that's fine. It's just another broken thing and doesn't really like offset the format or anything. The question is, how much application does this have in standard? I, I think it's going to be a fun card to explore. It wouldn't surprise me if there's a fine tier 2, tier 2.5 deck based around Bolus's Citadel. But I don't think it's going to like upset the format or really ruin anything for us as it stands right now. I don't think so either. I would have to actually investigate this because obviously there are cards like Revitalize or whatever and stuff like that mm-hmm. where it's like you can kind of break this a little bit. But but what's the end game? What are you doing? Like it doesn't seem like there is a combo kill. Tap, sack, 10 non-land permanents. It's like that's not easy to do really. No, so, it's not. It's not I don't at know. all. I, I, I feel like this this could just be like a big draw engine type of thing. But if you're talking about, you know, playing like combo control, is this better than just playing Liliana? I don't know. I feel like you, you probably have to kill someone over the course of like the next two turns. Right. And if you're just at a low life total, it's it's a blank, right? Like if you've struggled in the early game, then this card is basically worthless at that point. So I think your deck is going to be built around it. How does Sanguine Sacrament work with this card? Can you pay any amount for X? I have no idea. Yeah, I don't either. Probably not. Pay life equal to its converted mana cost rather than pay its mana cost. So do you get to set the converted mana cost of an X spell? So normally I would say that these things would not work like that, but it does not specifically say, I don't know, man. Yeah, we'll have to explore that because I think that's a, a little bit of an interesting interaction. Obviously, that just fuels up your next Bolus's Citadel if you keep hitting Sanguine Sacrament and it's truffles back in. So, you know, it kind of resets in a lot of ways. Number one, I don't know if that works. Number two, that's as close as I can get to broken in standard, and I still think it's pretty far off. So interesting card for the eternal formats, but I imagine very fringy as far as standard goes. Yep. So onto the white cards, we have Gideon Black Blade, one dub dub, legendary planeswalker Gideon, two static abilities. As long as it's your turn, Gideon Black Blade is a 4-4 human soldier creature which with indestructible that's still a planeswalker and prevent all damage that would be dealt to this during your turn. Also has a plus one up to one other target creature you control, gains your choice of Vigilance, Lifelink, or Indestructible until end of turn, and minus six exile target non-land permanence. I, I feel like whatever I say about this card is just going to end up being wrong. Like, this is so, so hard for me to evaluate because... So the plus one doesn't do a great job of setting up protection for Gideon because it only lasts till end of turn, right? So theoretically, if you could just make a creature indestructible, it could block in perpetuity for Gideon and make it safe. And that sounds pretty good. But this Gideon really doesn't play defense at all. 
it's pretty much a strictly offensive card. That being said, it's a three mana four four that has some vague indestructibility, but not really because it can also be attacked directly by creatures. So this is a long winded way of me saying I have no clue how good this card is. I'm assuming it's very good given that it's a Gideon. Uh, it's doing the kind of insane Gideon things where it's a cheap threat very early and has potential to snowball an advantage. But the minus six is certainly not a guarantee. You know, it takes till its third turn to be set up. That's a pretty long way off. So, I mean, maybe in the face of like a reactive deck, they're going to really struggle with the pressure Gideon presents. But in average games of like, you know, say a mid-range mirror type setup, I don't think Gideon's going to be that great. And maybe I'm just going to totally eat my words, but that's where I stand right now. No, this is a clock. And the plus one giving vigilance to another thing can potentially help you protect itself. But I mean, it, it starts at five loyalty, right? And then we'll slowly tick up from there. So it is pretty tough to kill. And I, I just imagine this card for out of like White Weenie against Esper or something. And it's like the perfect card for that matchup because they don't have good ways to actually attack Gideon. And the ways that they would have to remove Gideon typically cost more mana than it. So if this is like your turn three play and then they cry the Carnarium or Kaya's Wrath, you or whatever, you mm -hmm. just don't care. You just keep hammering them. And eventually you have like this minus six ready to go too. So I, I think in that regard, like this is this is going to be a huge card for the white aggressive decks, basically just against control and mid-range. So I, I agree with that. And it seems to really shine in that spot. But if you were looking at the way the Azorius aggro deck is kind of built right now, I don't think Gideon is better than any of the options currently present. Like, at large against the entirety of the format. Like you certainly rather have history of Benelia, uh, your other big payoffs being like venerated Loxodon, I think is a huge upgrade over Gideon. So is it a sideboard card in that instance? Maybe. And, and that's fine. I like those decks having powerful sideboard options to kind of have curveballs to throw at the control decks. I don't think though, this is just the starting point for white aggro decks. I, I think like you described, it's going to be kind of a curveball out of the sideboard. Yeah, likely. But I mean, there, there's, there is that flex slot with like unstable formation. And yeah. yeah, if we're talking about, you know, playing best of one or whatever, like I, you know, just played in this invitational tournament at like, this is definitely a card that you would main deck in, in that, I think, even it, even though it is high variance, For I do think that right now the yeah, the, the format is a little too aggressive to play a card like that in your main deck where it is basically only good against these defensive decks, I think, but I mean, it's it's possible that it's also just not as bad even against like mono red or whatever as you think, just because it has five loyalty and they kind of have to kill it because the lifelink will really help you and stuff like that. So I don't know. I, I don't think it is as unplayable against everything as you might think it is. I, I can't yell at you and call you an idiot because I am openly admitting I don't know. And this is one I'm absolutely going to have to put in play before I give my final opinion on. Yeah, legit. I, I think it is. It's strong in that it gives these decks something that they didn't have access to before, which mm -hmm. I think is huge. Okay. You know, bef before it was just like, all right, I'm playing a bunch of one drop creatures and I lose to Wrath most of the time and whatever. And, and now you actually have a thing that's good against that. And I think that's sick. Yeah. Next card is Gideon's Triumph. This is one dub instant. Target, a po target opponent sacrifices a creature that attacked or blocked this turn. If you control a Gideon Planeswalker, that player sacrifices two of those creatures instead. That's a big upgrade. Like That's a very, very different card uh, when you have a Gideon Planeswalker in play. And it's 
interesting to see these kind of cards make their way to the main set, right? Because we saw these Planeswalker cards matter a lot with the intro decks, and they were always on kind of silly spells. But now they're just, they're very real, and this feels like a powerful effect to me. It's interesting that the Gideon present only really wants to see play in aggressive decks. Like this would be a powerful, powerful option for a control deck to have that was also leaning on Gideon or even a mid-range deck again. So that makes me question again, Gideon's place in the format. But I, I do think this is a powerful effect and the upgrade is significant and worth fighting for in most instances. Yeah, I think this card is also interesting when we're talking about like settle the wreckage and in, mm-hmm. in how if if that card makes a comeback how people tend to play around that card is like, you know, attack with like their one big threat and leave their small things back or whatever. And this card just kind of punishes that, which I think is fairly interesting. But as far as like an edict on turn two or whatever, it's it's not going to necessarily take care of their mana dork or whatever, but it will take care of their two drop. And I think that this card is perfectly serviceable. It might be stronger than something like seal away if you have like spell synergy type stuff. Yeah, yeah, I could buy that. All right, on to the blue cards. We have Jace, Wielder of Mysteries. One, UUU, so four mana total. Legendary Planeswalker Jace for loyalty, static ability. If you would draw a card while your library has no cards in it, you win the game instead. So we got a little Laboratory Maniac action. And plus one, target player puts the top two cards of their library into their graveyard, draw a card. Minus eight, draw seven cards. Then if your library has no cards in it, you win the game. Am I missing something about this card? Like, this is just it bad. Seems really bad, right? Okay, okay. I, I just wanted to make sure because you see a Jace and, I, I mean, even Cunning Castaway, we had a moment, right, where we believed in it and Jace Cunning Castaway won a Pro Tour, so we can't disrespect it that much. But this Jace, so, so underwhelming. The only thing I thought about was like, can you replace Lab Maniac and Ad Nauseam with this Jace? And I don't even think you can do that. Like, that doesn't even make sense. So... Yeah, this is kind of a blank for me, unless there's going to be some deck that really is looking to achieve the goal of drawing a card with an empty library, has some way to cheat that goal. I, I just don't think Jace is going to see any play. This is quite a bad Planeswalker. Yeah, I'm I'm actually impressed. Like the, the three blue pips in the casting cost is kind of weird for how weak this is. Everything I don't about think- it is weird. I don't think this could be a three mana planeswalker, right? Because it's like tick up, draw a card. So mm-hmm. I think that that is very strong. And the only thing that I could think about with this was like the mono blue Arclight Phoenix deck. But even I think that this is just too slow for that archetype. So I, I don't know what this card is doing. Yeah, it feels like maybe we're missing a part of the puzzle and uh, maybe that will get revealed to us in the future. But for now, pass on Jace pretty hard. Next card, Augur Bolus. Uh, this is a reprint. 1U13 Creature Merfolk Wizard. When this enters the battlefield, look at the top three cards of your library. You may reveal an instant or sorcery card from among them. Put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. Uh, as we used to joke with this card, it was ETB, look at the bottom three cards of your library. Right. Just, be- just because you you would miss, you know? Always, always miss. But... You know, back back when Augur of Bolas was seeing a lot of play, you had things like Restoration Angel, which was like a card you wanted to play anyway. And Augur of Bolas had a lot of really cool synergy with that. And I, I still think that this card is going to be good, this go around. It's a wizard too, which is not an irrelevant creature type. There is, of course, Wizard's Retort, Wizard's Lightning. Yeah, this this was a 
power player last time it was in standard and certainly came with its share of frustrations and had a very good supporting cast. But there's some historical precedent for this card being powerful. I think people will try and make it work. I don't know if it's going to be a home run. It could be an interesting sideboard option in things like Simic Nexus, where you just want a blocker. Like the 1-3 Druid of the Cowl is a very, very important sideboard card for that deck. Could be Augur of Bolas is just better. I'd give that a shot. Uh, But I I do think this card finds some home, even if it's not quite the all-star it was last time around. Yeah, I agree with that. I actually started thinking about this card a lot just because, you know, me me and this card have some history. We go way back. Of course. I think having it as a two drop in Esper is kind of reasonable. Obviously, there are some bricks with Planeswalkers and Search for Escanta and stuff like that. But this is just a fine defensive tool for a control deck. And the fact that it it finds like a relevant spell is also just pretty nice on top of that. And then this in something like Drake's, I think, is pretty reasonable, where it's like mm-hmm. you're already playing a low land count and a lot of cantrips and stuff. And that deck always struggled with things like the white aggressive decks and you were looking for like, you know, whatever wall you could sideboard in and Augur of Bolas just does a very fine job against them. And then there are like the Grixis and Demir decks that were just like a little bit short basically. And I think Augur of Bolas is just really good in those decks. I totally forgot this was a Merfolk wizard. It's creature type must not have mattered whatsoever first go around, but uh, yeah, that's an interesting ad for those tribes. Yeah. And yeah, certainly the wizard synergies uh, do a lot too. Right. So, Merfolk more like this, of a, I like this card a lot. Merfolk more of a critical mass deck, unlikely to be able to leverage Augur of Bolas particularly well. Yep, agreed with that. But Wizard's Retort is a nice combo. Uh next up we have No Escape. This is two U instant counter target creature or planeswalker spell. If that spell is countered this way, exile it instead of putting it into its owner's graveyard. Scry one. Just depends how important exiling creatures is, you know, in past formats. Think about the Scrap Heap Scrounger format. We would have probably loved this card, even though it's often a turn late. It's interesting to see the overlap of creature Planeswalker as opposed to just creatures here. I, I, th- I do think that's a powerful upgrade. It's fighting for spaces, though, with a lot of other cards. So I don't know if this is a slam dunk. I think it's more of a very specific answer to a specific problem. I basically agree with all that. I think the, the Scry 1 is a nice value add and... You're not really missing out on a whole lot by not being able to counter like instants and sorceries, enchantments, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's possible that this just this just hits like a wide enough swath of the format that you would just play this. But there are also things like Wizards Retort and Absorb, Ionize. Like there, there's a lot of competition in the three mana slot. A lot of counter magic right now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this this next card I kind of just added here because I feel like people would yell at us if we didn't talk about it. And this is Flux Channeler, two U two two Human Wizard. Whenever you cast a non creature spell, proliferate. This card's exciting, and it's exciting in a way that like I already know I'm going to waste a bunch of time with it and probably come up with absolute garbage for all that time wasted. But I enjoy building these proliferate decks. I know uh, Sam Black, another person who has. <laughs> an affinity for these pro- proliferate strategies. They're difficult to make work. They like require all these pieces to come together in this perfect synergy. But when they do, you feel very powerful. And I wasted a lot of time on trying to make p- proliferate work the last time it was present in the format. So I know it's coming. 
there's opt. There's a nice little cantrip to kind of enable strategies like this. There's tons and tons of planeswalkers, including some cheap planeswalkers, which will be on the battlefield earlier than usual, uh, that might really benefit from getting some additional counters. So let's see what Flux Channeler can do. It's probably going to just eat up a bunch of my time and not achieve anything all that noteworthy because it's still a 2-2 for 3. And it's like, you could just gutter snipe, right? And gutter snipe kind of wins the game in those spots as opposed to just proliferates a bunch. So it's got that hurdle to overcome. We haven't been able to make gutter snipe work thus far. That's all I'll say. Right. there. I mean, there's also things like Radical Idea, which I could see being pretty strong with this card. And Mm -hmm. obviously there are things that uh, you, you can proliferate I mean, there's like the amass tokens and all the planeswalkers and stuff. So I imagine people trying to build like super friends decks with this card. But then it's like you need a bunch of planeswalkers. You need flux channelers. You need ways to trigger your flux channelers. And then you need defensive cards. And it seems kind of like too much to me. But who knows? It's always a lot of pieces to make these decks work. And uh, we'll see if anyone finds the secret sauce. We This is a card that really relies on having the entire set spoiled before you can truly evaluate it. Because you need to know exactly what you're pro- proliferating on. Right. All right, on to the red cards. We have Chandra, Fire Artisan, 2RR, Legendary Planeswalker, Chandra, for starting loyalty, static ability. Whenever one or more loyalty counters are removed from Chandra, she deals that much damage to target opponent or Planeswalker. Plus one, exile the top card of your library. You may play it this turn. And minus seven, exile the top seven cards of your library. You may play them this turn. Interesting. Very interesting. Very odd. If you think about it in terms of like two decks that are attacking each other, a red deck trying to get an opponent's life total down, you play Chandra, you plus it either for the rest of the game until you minus seven and probably just went on the spot you have an extra card every turn or your opponent has to consent to taking five damage at some point. And that's kind of like a punisher effect that maybe is worth it. Maybe it feels a little expensive for what it does in a lot of ways. Uh, And again, I think it requires a very specific deck, which is great. I love seeing planeswalkers that aren't just like on their face, the most powerful thing you can be doing. It feels like Chandra is supposed to be a sideboard option again for aggressive red decks. Right, but I, I look at this, like, com- compare it to Experimental Frenzy. You know, they both sit at the same mana right. cost, are kind of doing sort of the same thing. I, I do like the Chandra static for sure, but she she's really not doing a whole lot. Right. You know? Right. That It's about building up to that ultimate threat, I think, and having the minus seven. But like you said, when is it better to have Chandra in play for, what are we talking, one, two, three, four turns? Right, we have to have four turns of successful Chandrine before we get that minus seven. What would four turns of successful experimental frenzy be worth? Now, granted, there's different vulnerabilities, right? If a format's loaded with Mortify, then something like Chandra could get a lot of points. But just in terms of raw output, it's very, very much outmoded by experimental frenzy. Yeah, I agree with that. So kind of sad because this is one of the cooler designs, I think, for these planeswalkers so far. Very interesting. A lot of interesting stuff in the design space. And uh, I still hope it's a final blaze of glory and we get a break from Planeswalkers for a while, especially after this incredible overload. As good as these are and as interesting as they are, I'm just ready for some non-Planeswalker time at this point. Yeah, that's fair. Next card is Dreadhorde Arcanist. 1R, Creature, Zombie, Wizard, 1-3. Has Trample, and whenever this attacks, you may cast target instant or sorcery card with CMC cost less than or equal to 
Dreadhorde Arcanist power from your graveyard without paying its mana cost. If that card would be put into your graveyard this turn, exile instead. So if you can pump this up, you can play some pretty big spells. Otherwise, this thing is flashing back like shocks and ops and stuff like that. Could be good enough. Really depends on setup. I am fairly low on this right now. It feels like one of those cards that just like, if everything goes right, it's busted. But that's not what these decks are about. They're just about getting consistent output. And this is probably a little bit too inconsistent for me. See, I think this card is dope. Like, not only it, it has good creature types, right? Like, there's a lot of zombie support in this set, or like maybe not support. There's not a lot of things that care about zombies, but there are a lot of zombies, which means that maybe the zombie support cards from before will be relevant. But also, it being a wizard is pretty nice. Yeah, that's true. And you could you you can also just load up your deck with like the warlords furies and crash throughs and stuff like that. And it's like, whenever this thing attacks, you draw a card basically like that's pretty nice. Just go off hard. Yeah. I, I get what you're saying, but like we're talking about a different deck than the default red deck now, which is fine. I, there's certainly room for other options and you know, there are zombie payoffs existing in the world right now, as well as wizard payoffs. So maybe something tribal can really leverage this very well. Uh, we'll have to see. I, I think just on its face, it's asking a little bit much, but it, maybe if you build around it, it'll have enough payoff to make it worthwhile. What about if you're playing like red, black mid range and you play against control and you just play like turn one duress, turn two this, you know, like I think that's pretty sick too. Double duress is nice. So yeah. Okay. So I don't okay. know. You're, you're making a good case. I mean, I guess just like in that spot, you're, you're just getting duress, right? Like, that's about it for the entirety of the game. And you're saddled with this one, three, like there has to be some other way to upgrade this. I think it has to be doing more than just bringing back your one mana spells. And it remains to be seen if it's worth it to put in that kind of investment. You could collision this several times, right? Or is it the Colossus side? Colossus. Yeah. I guess if you Colossus and then attack and you just and Colossus attack. it again, like that's a lot. Yeah. A lot of damage there. Okay. I don't know. I, I think that there's a lot of stuff that we could be doing to build around this. Certainly looking into ways to pump it seems pretty legit, but I like this card. Yeah, it'll, it merits some exploration. I'll give you that. All right. Next card is Grim Initiates. This is R11 uh, Creature Zombie Warrior. First strike. When this dies, a mass one. These cards are always good. Always. 100% of the time. Hunted Witness, Doom Traveler. Yeah, this will have a home. You think about things like Judith decks, uh, decks that are sacrificing things. Seems like a home run to me. These cards are just always, always, always good. This one has first strike. It has, a, again, a relevant creature type, possibly, and zombies. Weird to see so many red zombies around this time, but I kind of dig it. I think this is a no-brainer inclusion in standard. It's going to do something. The question is what, and the starting point is almost certainly Priest of Forgotten Gods, Judith type synergies. Yep, definitely agree. All right, on to green cards. We have Nissa who shakes the world. 3GG legendary planeswalker Nissa, starting five loyalty. Static ability, whenever you tap a forest for mana, add an additional G. Plus one, put three plus one plus one counters on up to one target non-creature land you control. Untap it. It becomes a zero zero elemental creature with vigilance and haste. That's still a land. And minus eight, you get an emblem with lands you control have indestructible. Search your library for any number of forests, put them into play tapped, then shuffle your library. So you can't go tall on a land, I guess, but that still seems fine. Nissa protects itself. In the meantime, she's a mana flare. If all of your lands are forests and 
Uh, that counts Shocklands too, so maybe not all your lands are mana flared, but at least like a significant portion of them would be. So you just go like 5 to 12 on your next turn? Immediately? No, you go 5 to 14, right? Because you can get double activation out of that forest that you untap. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's incredible, incredible mana acceleration. The question is, are the payoffs there? Is this difficult to protect? Because that plus one is only like half protection. It's a little vulnerable as far as protection goes. So you can't just invest everything into this mana ramp strategy. And if your opponent has battlefield presence, it just goes away immediately and does nothing. But when you start thinking about the potential upside that Nissa has and the just incredible amounts of mana this card could generate, you have to start exploring payoffs Nothing springs to mind as a super exciting payoff right now, but I'll certainly do some gather researchers and see what I come back with because any kind of insano mana generation always, always catches my eye. Yeah, you also have things like Wayward Swordtooth, and there were some green red decks floating around that were comboing like Swordtooth, Treasure Map, and Experimental Frenzy. And I, th- I think those decks were mostly just like ramping to big bane fires, which is also pretty reasonable. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I, f- I feel like this is probably a thing. What about Kamal's Druidic Vow? Does that excite you? No. <laughs> that card has never excited anyone in its history. No, it does not. No, it does not. I am sitting on a pile of Mox Ambers, though, so if you want to make that happen, by all means. Uh, probably not going to happen with that card. Well, I mean, they're they're already like 20 bucks or whatever, so. All right, winner. I'm winning. Yeah. All right, next card, Vivian, Champion of the Wilds, 2G. For starting loyalty, you may cast creatures as though they had flash, plus one until your next turn. Up to one target creature gains vigilance and reach. Minus two, look at the top three cards of your library. Exile one face down. Put the rest on the bottom of your library. For as long as that card remains exiled, you may look at that card and you may cast it if it's a creature card. So you got some mind games going on with this Vivian. I kind of like it. Yeah, this is a nice switcheroo for like... The Gruul decks, for instance, I think could really leverage this card. Any kind of Llanowar Elf deck certainly has to consider this card because playing this on turn two is pretty awesome against a lot of decks in the format. Again, I am inclined to see this more as a sideboard card. That could just be my difficulty evaluating this as it stands right now. So I want to play it safe and tuck it away in matchups where I know it'll be good. And I think like in the control matchup where you can jam this very early, get some card advantage out of it and just have it on the battlefield is something they have to answer. I think it'll be very, very good for sure, but maybe it's just good everywhere. I mean, this seems like an exciting ability to have on a planeswalker. Yeah, I think so too. I th- I, I don't know. Like this card just seems fun to me, you know? Yeah. I, I love the flash mind games. I think they're interesting. We've seen cards like this before out of green. I, I, I can't remember any of them offhand, but I know this is a effect we've had access to. I want to say one of like the early core sets had a green creature that gave all your creatures flash. Um, and it was an important player in the format. It was, again, a good sideboard option. So, uh, Next up, we have, I, I know I'm not going to pronounce this correctly. I apologize. Jang Yang Yu, Wildcrafter. I, th- I think I blew it. I, that's That would have been my take as well. So if, if you blew it, I would have blown right. it too. <laughs> uh, 2G, Planeswalker, three starting loyalty. Each creature you control with a plus one, plus one counter on it has tap, add one mana of any color, and he has a minus one, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature. So this this has kind of been talked about as Rishkar Planeswalker, basically. I think that's generous. I, I think this is really about how many creatures with plus one, plus one counters you can naturally amass. You see what I did there, Jerry? Did you catch that? Yeah. Yeah, and I okay. hate it. 
Okay. Just making sure. I don't know how easy that's going to be. Uh, I think the work you have to do for this card is probably not going to be worth it. And just like distributing three minus one or three plus one plus one counters on its face isn't going to be worth all that much. So you need to make sure you're getting paid on the ramp. And that means you're not attacking with the larger creature. So I don't know. This reads to me as limited fodder, but maybe I'm just misunderstanding the card. Again, I will keep making this concession. These cards are so hard to evaluate. Well, you have things like the formation card. You have a lot of proliferate stuff. You certainly have X payoffs in Hydroid Crassus and stuff like that. Uh, this works pretty well with Hadana's Climb. So, and Zagana, I guess, too. So, like, there, there's a lot of plus one, plus one counter synergy. I'm not sure what the best way to go about it is necessarily, but this card seems reasonable to me, even if it's, you know, like a, a weird slash maybe bad Song of Frey, at least. Yeah, I think all those cards you mentioned, though, are just like on their face so much more powerful. And so what is this displacing from these strategies that we're now happy to have Zhang Yang Yu in the deck? I, I did even worse than you did by, on the pronunciation, by the way. But I don't see it as of now. This is one that I would pass on and uh, I would have to be proven wrong before I was brewing excitedly around the wild crafter. All right. Well, what about Vivian's Arcbow? 1G legendary artifact. X tap. Discard a card. Look at the top X cards of your library. You may put a creature card with CMC X or less from among them onto the battlefield. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Again, feels like a weird sideboard card to me. A very potent threat against something like control, a recurring source of card advantage, a way to maximize all of your mana. Uh, Those things are generally very good, but just like Paying two mana, not affecting the battlefield will be a death knell against a bunch of decks presently in the format, mono white, uh, mono red for sure. So feels like sideboard fodder, but a neat card. I think it's really interesting and a cool angle for these green creature decks to have access to. It is not card advantage. Oh, excuse me, because of the discard. You're right. Not card advantage, but card selection. Yeah. So no matter what, you're like down a card just for this thing. I'm surprised that this doesn't have like some static rider on it or whatever, but Mm. hmm. Yeah, maybe it's a little underpowered in that context. I I kind of blanked out the discard a card part from my mind when I was doing my first pass. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at this like, okay, this is a, a, you know, discard outlet. Does that do anything for me? A free discard outlet? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of interesting if you have like a low land count, a, a low CMC average, and you actually want to discard cards. Like, I don't know if, we're trying to like arc bow into footlight fiends and, you know, discard uh, gutter bones or whatever. Like that seems pretty yeah, mopey. You but. probably miss so much with this though. I, actually, I, th- I just think this card is awful. I, I think you're going to miss way too often and it's just going to be so painful. Now you're down essentially two cards oh, for yeah. every time you miss. Yeah, I, I'm kind of off this one. Yeah, it's it's not great. <laughs> All right, on, on to the gold cards. Uh, we, we have some heavy hitters. Let's just start with, Nickel Bolus Dragon God. This is BBBUR. So five mana total. Uh, Legendary Planeswalker, four starting loyalty, static ability. This has all loyalty abilities of all other Planeswalkers on the battlefield. Plus one, you draw a card. Each opponent exiles a card from their hand or a permanent they control. Minus three, destroy target creature or planeswalker. Minus eight, each opponent who doesn't control a legendary creature or planeswalker loses the game. So this card's busted, right? 
so this is like an old school planeswalker where on its face it's just doing incredible incredible things and is clearly powerful and can kind of do everything the hurdle is of course that mana cost and it is a significant hurdle but not an impossible one given the mana present in the format you have to think that this gives grixis a shot in the arm which it definitely needs right now it's lagging behind uh some of the other shards and Bolas can just be the finisher. That kind of answers a lot of the problems the deck presently has. I buy it. I, I think it's an important card in the format. And especially like this is a Planeswalker focused format now and you just get all the Planeswalker abilities. So that's got to be useful. I wonder how often you'll actually activate someone else's Planeswalker ability because Bolas's abilities are great. There's some strong ones here for sure. Uh, I could see like... Huh. What what is the best one you can steal that can theoretically be in play? Dude, where it just know. comes down and you're able to leverage it right away. It's it, it's funny too because like the starting loyalty has to be very carefully managed, so you can't just do completely bonkers things immediately. But it's nice. It's a nice strategic option, and it's also going to make for some really cool stories, right? Where you just like find the perfect planeswalker ability to get out of an otherwise impossible situation. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I I feel like. That static is cute, but I probably won't be using it very much. Let's see. Let's see how often it matters. All right. Uh, next up, we have Niv Mizzet Reborn. This is Wooberg, one one of each colored mana for a 6-6 flyer. When this enters the battlefield, reveal the top 10 cards of your library. For each color pair, choose a card that's exactly those colors from among them. Put the chosen cards into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. So this card is potentially a draw 10. Just throwing that out there. Very, very potentially. I don't know what we're doing here. I mean, I I think the most interesting thing is that it's not like a cast trigger. So you could cheat this into play in decks with more reasonable distribution of converted mana costs. Or, you know, how much value do you have to get from Niv-Mizzet for it to really be a slam dunk? And I, I don't think the answer is that much. Like, if you cast three spells, you probably just win a lot of the time if they're powerful enough spells. So, or excuse me, you just get them in hand. But if, if you're uh, upping three cards, I think that could be enough from your five drop, especially because you're left with a 6-6 six, six flyer on the board. So the question is, how reliable is the mana? We have things like the Chromatic Lantern setups. Obviously, the mana is pretty good in the format. I don't know if we can go quite this far. But this feels kind of more cute than a real player to me. Treasure map fixes all problems, my friend. Of course, you're going to hype up treasure map in this situation. <laughs> I should have known. Yeah, you should have known, obviously. Yeah. Uh, say there was a five mana six six flyer that was like ETB draw four spells, right? Hmm. Would would that be good enough? I mean, like obviously people would try and you know build around it and everything, but like given the mana constraints and the deck building constraints, it seems tough. Yeah, I I think it would be good enough, but like you were talking about it's a completely different world where like that card is just reasonable to cast. And this card is really not all that reasonable to cast. Like you're already jumping through a bunch of hoops. And there's probably also better payoffs for chromatic lantern type stuff than this card. Uh maybe it's just like if you're already going down that path, this is a little a little sugar on top. But if you're already on that path, I think you're probably not all that concerned about doing the optimal thing anyway. So you don't have to worry about what we're saying here. Just keep doing your thing. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, one thing I will note is that Hero Precinct 1 would be pretty awesome in this deck. So Yeah, look at all those tokens you just made. Yep. All right. Uh, next up, we have Tezzeret Master of the Bridge. This is the buy a box promo. So not actually in the set. And 
Uh, also worth noting that the the mechanic that it mentions is not in the set, but this is for UB legendary planeswalker Tezzeret, five starting loyalty. Static is creature and planeswalker spells you cast have affinity for artifacts. So not in the set, but cute. Plus two, this deals X damage to each opponent where X is the number of artifacts you control. You gain X life. Minus three, return target artifact card from your graveyard to your hand. And minus eight, exile the top 10 cards of your library for uh, put all artifact cards from among them onto the battlefield. So if you want to play Fountain of Youth and or Fountain of Renewal, Scrabbling Claws, Treasure Map, uh, maybe the BBB Lich, stuff like that. I mean, this is a pretty good payoff for that sort of archetype. I think the plus two is pretty strong. Like it kills people very quickly and gains you a bunch of life. The minus three is medium and the minus eight will probably win you the game, but I don't know. Agree with everything you said. I still hate buy a box promos. I still hate that. This is like a card that could be considered for constructed decks that that's the only way to get it and only appears in foil. And I kind of can't believe we're still doing this after Nexus of Fate, but uh, it's not as egregious as Nexus of Fate. We'll say that. That's that's my take on Tesseret. Yep, definitely agree with that. Uh, next up, we have Domri, Anarch of Bolus, one RG Planeswalker. Starting loyalty is three. Creatures you control get plus one plus zero plus one. Add G or R. Creatures you cast this turn can't be countered. Minus two target creature you control fights target creature you don't control. So uh, a little fight thing, a little mana engine, a, a little pump em ups. Yeah, it's neat. I, th- I think it's probably pretty good. I mean, uh, doing things like Zerta Goblin, play it as a 3-3 and then fight and kill a creature on the next turn and then start doing your thing, ramping a little bit, getting a little value because your creatures are bigger. Uh, I could see Domri snowballing a little bit in the early game. Again, I want to mention this as a card that seems like a great sideboard option in a lot of spots. Like turn off counter magic is often worthwhile. Uh, the problem is the minus two doesn't really do anything in that context, but maybe accelerated clock plus a little protection from counter magic would be worth it. This seems again, like just a solid role player, not a slam dunk, but will fit into some versions of red green aggro in some metagames. So it'll be a tool to have in our toolbox essentially. Yeah. Pretty decent for for a three mana planeswalker, especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always get upgrades when it's only a three mana planeswalker because it has such an immediate and early impact on the game. Yep. Next up, we have Rail Storm Conduit. This is uh, two UR legendary planeswalker, four starting loyalty, static. Whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery spell, this deals one damage to target opponent or planeswalker. Plus two scry one, minus two. When you cast your next instant or sorcery spell this turn, copy that spell. You may choose new targets for the copy. So medium outside of the combo kill aspects. Okay, so talk about the combo kill. Let people know what we're doing there. There is any spell on the stack that is CMC four or less. You expansion the spell, and then you expansion your expansion, and then your expansion copies your expansion, etc. They die. You can also use uh, the red dual cast thing to make it more apt to happen. People seem to be a little concerned about this combo's existence. I am not. It seems pretty benign to me. 
you could already do things like this with electrostatic field if you really wanted to. It, it's nice that RAL is like a little upside. And will some games end in that fashion? I, I think it's totally plausible. I, I do think it'll be mostly rare, though. And in situations where you have a RAL that's fairly safe, as well as two expansion explosions in your hand, you might be in a pretty good spot anyway. And it's questionable how good RAL just is on its own. So that kind of has to be explored a little bit more. I think the combo is interesting, but it's not like Felidar Guardian, Saheeli Rai territory. But I do think it'll win some games in standard from time to time. Did, does Electrostatic Field actually work with two expansions? Oh, no, because it doesn't work with the copy. You're right. You're right. Right, right. So, yeah, okay. that, that is the reason why this card is scary, right? So, okay. I mean, the the good part about it is that Rel on its face is not great. Like you have six loyalty and you get to scry and stuff like that. Mm. And then maybe you minus two on like a deafening Clarion or something. But this does give Jeskai like a sort of combo kill. Um, so, yeah, maybe kind of scary. But if they're in full control, kind of like what you mentioned, I, I don't think it's that big of a deal because they're not really going to kill you from a low base where they play Rao, play a spell, and play two expansions. You know, like that is almost certainly just not going to happen. What about this is just like a fair card? Like granted, if you have this card in your deck, you do probably have that backdoor, that win condition. It's there somewhere. But when you're just playing this in fair situations, like minus two, cast your Lava Coil. That's not bad. I I think that's a fine Planeswalker. And like you said, it protects itself fairly well via high loyalty. So that's good. But it's not a slam dunk. And it's competing for some very valuable space. The best thing I've heard is just like including this in the existing team of reclamation decks as a new kill condition and a little bit more consistency for that deck as well. That deck certainly benefits from having like two growth spirals on certain turns or two removal spells in a very key spot. And I kind of hate Niv-Mizzet in that deck. So any excuse to get Niv-Mizzet out, I'm totally on board with and willing to try Ral in that slot. But I, I'm not afraid of this card. I do think it's quite good, but people seem to be a little over panicked at this point. Well, I, I do like that. It kind of just sits around and like either kills the opponent or can pick off their planeswalkers and stuff. I'm also maybe I if you play this on turn four, you tick it up to six and then maybe you untapped and like opt expansion, expansion, like then they die, mm-hmm. which is the scariest part. But yeah, it seems not good enough to see play in a normal deck. So then maybe people are only doing the combo thing. And I think with so many planeswalkers running around, like people are going to have to be prepared to answer this thing on turn four, no matter what. So right. I, I don't know. I It doesn't seem that scary to me and it doesn't actually seem that good to me. So I think we're safe, but who knows? I guess I'll point out you can do that on turn three, right? In the reclamation decks, because you're going to be growth spiraling probably. So you play your turn three, Ral, turn four, win on the spot. Yeah, I mean... That, it's a very nice draw. A very, very nice draw. It does make it scarier. But yeah, that is basically all your resources for sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, next up, Soar and Vengeful Bloodlord. Uh, two dub B, four starting loyalty. As long as it's your turn, creatures and planeswalkers you control have lifelink. Plus two, this deals one damage to target player or planeswalker. Uh, also with lifelink. And then minus X, return target creature with CMC X from your graveyard to the battlefield. That creature is a vampire in addition to its other types. So kind of uh, a a Johnny adversary of Tyrants-ish, giving all of your creatures lifelink, obviously has, you know, positive interactions against 
mono red and stuff like that. So I don't know the the fact that this is good against like beatdown and control makes me pretty happy. Yeah, the plus two seems so thin though, like so so thin. And I guess that's just because the X is super impactful. So we'll have to see how hard we can leverage this X. I've appreciated Soren's ability to dramatically change racing situations in the past. And I, I don't underestimate that at this point, giving all of your creatures and planeswalkers, which is a weird little wrinkle to have and not one we've really seen before lifelink. It's cool and probably more impactful than it actually reads. So we'll have to see if that's enough to carry Soren to some good results. But I, I think with enough value targets to pull out of the bin, uh, Soren will be seeing quite a bit of play in standard. Yeah, and then you you have to compare it to a Johnny, obviously, in those sorts of decks where it's like you're talking about playing it in an aristocrat style thing or whatever. The fact that the fact that it makes it a vampire too could be reasonable because you had the vampire deck that showed up uh, at MC Cleveland, Very which true. which looked decent. And I, I don't know like what non-vampire thing you want to turn into a vampire, maybe Judith or whatever, but who knows? Yeah, a little tribal bonus there. Yeah, uh, next card, Cruel Celebrant, uh, B-dub, 1-2, Vampire, whenever this or another creature or Planeswalker you control dies, each opponent loses one and you gain one. I didn't think we were going to get this card. This card's also a Vampire. Uh, Yeah, so look, we have kind of some egg on our face from the last one of these we did, and that egg relates to Judith, which we both were incredibly, incredibly high, and your number one card, my number two card, Uh, which has been almost entirely absent from the format. I am very much convinced, though, that we did not get the power level of that card wrong. Just the supporting pieces weren't quite there to push things in the right direction. Uh, Cruel Celebrant is just another one of those pieces playing very well with Judith and uh, Priest of Forgotten Gods, another card we were pretty high on. So, yeah, as more and more pieces get put together for this Mardu Aristocrats deck, it just looks like a complete powerhouse. And uh, this is an important one for sure. Well, the the problem with Judith is the polls in the format being mono red and Esper control and how strong those decks are and how much the existence of both of them basically eliminates any sort of smaller mid range strategy. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't think it is a power level thing. And I do think that a lot of the pieces are there. Obviously cruel celebrant helps a lot, but I don't think that cruel celebrant necessarily helps against Esper or whatever to the point where you're actually favored and, and the Esper decks that would normally sideboard something like cry of the carnarium now main deck it just because the aggressive decks are so good. So I think it's just like this strategy can't really exist, even though we have all the pieces. You don't think this is worth some points against red though? Like this isn't it, an actual upgrade. Well, it is, but the problem is like they, they just kill your first few things. You don't get any traction. And then what is this card doing? Right. Blank one, two on the battlefield. No, I hear what you're saying. And certainly those hurdles are still there. Uh, I think there are many, many pieces that have, found their way into those decks. We talked a little bit about the uh, Amass, our our new, what's the default one? Doom Traveler. So, so getting more and more of those cards has to do something for the archetype. I guess we'll have to see if it's enough to overcome those polls, like you said. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, at this point, I'm skeptical, but obviously I'm going to play around with this stuff. And uh, the Dreadhorde enchantment is very appealing to me, so I'm certainly going to try, but I'm not going to try and sell people on stuff when it, it's been pretty clear that that sort of stuff is starting from a deficit. Yeah, no, that's fair. All right, we got uh, Teferi Time Raveler, one U-dub, 
Planeswalker for starting loyalty static is each opponent can cast spells only any time they could cast a sorcery plus one until your next turn. You may cast sorcery spells as though they had flash. The minus three is return up to one target artifact creature or enchantment to its owner's hand. Draw a card. People are loving this card. So you having said that makes me believe you are not loving this card. Is that accurate? Well, check this out. It's like three mana. You repulse a thing, leave behind a planeswalker. That's mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. The the whole like Teferi thing where they can only do stuff at a sorcery, I don't think that that is super relevant unless you're talking about control mirrors. And then the plus one, you can cast sorceries as though they had flashes, just like whatever. So, I mean, I think this card is fine, like as a tempo tool and maybe as a control mirror breaker to some extent. But even the, the control decks aren't really fighting on the stack to that extent. I mean, if they have to chemistry's inside main phase and then you get a window to resolve big to fairy or whatever, cool. But I don't think this card is like busted. I don't think this card is a $20 rare, but I don't know. Am I wrong? Do you want to guess where I see this card really fitting in quite nicely? Hit me. Inside boards, much like the rest of these planeswalkers. I, I think you're spot on. It does a very effective thing in a certain matchup. And it can be a control breaker. It's important to have those three mana planeswalkers that really punish your opponent. And I think you can leverage Teferi to punish your opponent successfully. Games where you start with it are going to be very different from games where you don't. But on the whole, the plus one isn't going to do a huge amount. And the minus three is just like, fine. I I appreciate having access to it, but uh, it's not the best form of protection, obviously, and it's hard to get card advantage out of Teferi. You need a lot of turns with it in play before it actually starts making cards for you, and that points me in the direction that you need its static ability to be very, very good, and that ability just isn't great in a bunch of matchups. You need to wait for the matchups where it is great, so that is pushing me towards the sideboard. I mean, it's also weird because post-board, they're bringing in, like, Thief of Sanities and stuff like that and becoming like more of a tap out deck. And obviously if they play a thief, you play it to fairy bounce to draw a card like that's good. But then you have to be able to answer the Thief of Sanity. But it just it means that the static is not as relevant as it would be normally, you know. So Mm. if you can slot some of these into your Esper main deck to be a little bit better in Esper mirrors, like, yeah, you should probably do that. But I don't know that that is necessarily going to be viable. Yeah, I'm not sure either. And I think if you're trying to, you know, if you're just thinking of direct analogs to what we have now, I'm not looking to replace my Kaya's with Teferi, right? Like Kaya does way more in a bunch more matchups. And this isn't the three mana Planeswalker we're looking for most of the time. So yeah, I I need to wait on this card. It does feel a little overhyped right now, although not useless. And I think that's the point I keep coming back to with all these cards. They all have their uses. They're just not as broad as some of these Planeswalkers we've seen in the past. I guess you can like play this on three, bounce their two drop. They play a three drop. You tick up past the turn and then you can like wrath as an instant if you wanted to, or like even let your Teferi die and then wrath into their turn and then play a Teferi or something like things like that could happen. But that's all fine, but that's not like game breaking type stuff. And like Kaya killing their one drop is worth a lot more, right? So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I buy it entirely in all but a select few matchups. Right. I feel like in that scenario, they go two drop, three drop, you cast wrath on four and it it's still fine, you know? Yep. So. Yeah. All right, next card, Time Wipe. 
Two dub dub use of five mana total sorcery. Return a creature you control to its owner's hand, then destroy all creatures. You see mid range decks board in sweepers occasionally, and this is kind of a nice one where you don't necessarily have to work too hard to make it a secret that you have a wrath. Like this is just bad for them no matter what. And Mm -hmm. you know, it's like if you have two creatures and they have three and you're like, okay, I want a wrath now, at least now you get one of those creatures back. But eh. yeah, you think about like what the Mardu vehicles decks used to do in post board scenarios, which I, I know you never really liked, but like it was a widely employed strategy and had they access to blue mana doing it with time wipe would have been much cleaner I don't see a deck that exists right now that's interested in this. Like, I don't think the Azorius aggro decks are necessarily looking to do this. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they just want to set up uh, mirrors this way or something. But it seems like they're far too mana light to really do this reliably. And they go far too wide as well. It's not like they just have one threat. So this is a wrath for a deck that doesn't exist at a time when we already have access to a four mana wrath. So... Not yet is my response on Time Wipe. Maybe I'll find a place in the future where I can really leverage it. But yeah, I haven't seen it thus far. I mean, if you're trying to play like Bant or something and you want a card for White Weenie, like this is this is probably it. This is your best wrath. I mean, you could play Settle the Wreckage or even Cleansing Nova or whatever. And this is maybe slightly better. Maybe, maybe. Maybe. I think back to like the very... Early in the format, Bant decks, like the Bant Flash decks. And yeah, maybe this card is fine there. You can bounce uh, Frilled Mystic, right? That's pretty cool. All right, sure. Yeah. That seems yeah, that's really That's how I feel about it, too. And I know. I know. On to the Rakdos cards, and we have a lot of them. Dreadhorde Butcher, BR11 Zombie Warrior, Haste. When this deals combat damage to a player or Planeswalker, put a plus one, plus one counter on this. When this dies, it deals damage equal to its power to any target. So... BR Slith Firewalker upgraded in that it counts damage to Planeswalkers, which is nice. And then the dies trigger is good too. Gerald, I have I have something for you. Dreadhorde you Butcher. Dreadhorde Butcher. Attack. Get a counter on it. Do a little bit of damage. Next turn, Dreadhorde Butcher. Attack. Colossus. Get another counter on it. Thud. Sacrifice the Dreadhorde Butcher. Throw it at your opponent's face. Does this type of nonsense excite you? That is a million damage. It's, it's roughly a million. Um, I, I think it might actually be lethal. I'm, I'm not a mathematician, but I, I think it's possible that that is a actual turn three kill in standard. I, I think that's lethal on turn three. It's seven. Oh, okay. Yeah, because Thud deals damage. Thud deals damage. Yeah. Yeah, it's 21. That's right. a lot of damage on turn three. And those were only three cards I listed right there and like three somewhat reasonable cards. I'm not saying that Thud, Dreadhorde, Bit, Butcher, Colossus is going to be a staple of the format going forward. But anytime you can kill on turn three in standard, it's worth taking note of. And this is a really, really powerful card. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that it, it like either two for ones your opponent, like they have to block it in combat, maybe lose it or other thing. This thing can trade up, which is cool. It gets out of control. Like I, this card's fine. So the cleanest thing to do is like in matchups where there won't be blockers, you can lean really hard on Dreadhorde Butcher. And again, zombie creature type comes up again, which is a creature type we've mentioned several times. Uh, there is Death Baron floating around. So there's some zombie synergies, certainly not what we had in the past in the Amonkhet block. Uh, but they're there if you want to work for them. And 
kind of a believer in this card. It needs some things to go right. It needs a very clean battlefield. But if you're willing to put in the work, uh, this gets out of control very quickly. And I remember Slith, Slith Firewalker being a dominant card at times. Times have changed, but I still think there's space for Dreadhorde Butcher. Well, Slith Firewalker was good because there was like the uh, Tooth and Nail Tron decks, you know, and like that was this persistent threat. But yeah, Death Baron gives it Death Touch on both halves. So that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. This is a good sacrifice outlet or sacrifice trigger type of thing mm-hmm. for the Judith decks and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, this card has a lot going on for it. Yep. Next up, we have Angraph's Rampage. BR Sorcery, choose one. Target player sacrifices an artifact. Target player sacrifices a creature. Target player sacrifices a planeswalker. I like this card. The best of one card. All the answers in one card for whatever might ail you at the time. Yeah, so decent. Definitely not Dreadbore power level, but still pretty reasonable. Covers a lot of ground, a uh, little bit of everything. You'll always find a use for it in virtually every matchup. So I, I buy this card. Um, not sure it's like four of slam dunk in every single black red deck, but nice little wrinkle to have access. And, and again, I do think as we get deeper and deeper into this post arena world, best of one and best of three will continue to branch out from each other. It could be this is just a key card in best of one and more of a fringe player in best of three. Yeah, I could see that. It's worth noting that edicts, uh, while powerful, do kind of have diminishing returns. Yep. Unless there are specifically decks that are just like, oh, I'm going to play a Tarmogoyf and then like another giant green creature and whatever, you know, like there are a lot of one drop, like really crappy creatures in standard currently. For sure. Absolutely. Um, You know, if Gideon picks up in the white decks, you'll always have a target there. So it really depends a lot on how these decks evolve as time goes on. If there's always something to be targeting with Angrath's Rampage, we'll have to see. Yep. Uh, Next card is Widespread Brutality, 1BRR Sorcery. Amass 2, then the army you amassed deals damage equal to its power to each non-army creature. So at worst, this is going to deal two damage to each other creature. If you're doing other amass type things like with, uh, you know, the dread horde enchantment, then you can potentially make a bigger thing. Uh, it's kind of awkward that if you have, uh, an army in play that you want to amass onto and you play brutality, they kill your thing. You're going to amass a new creature, uh, but they can like kill your six, six to make it only deal two damage and stuff. So like, this is not, reliable sweeper or anything but i do think that this is a good sideboard card for some sort of black red mid-range deck yeah it feels a little finicky but like we said there could be some really good amass payoffs and you know this is certainly a synergy to lean on with our new bitter blossom so we'll have to see what else is out there but uh, a little bit too much work for not enough sizzle for me on this card yeah, that's fine. I mean, it's just uh, like if if I were playing red, black midrange and I wanted a sweeper for like big green creatures or whatever, this is probably what I would turn to, you know? OK. okay. And obviously you need some other amass stuff to to actually make this able to kill Steel Leaf Champion and stuff. But I think that there are enough payoffs there. But anyway, yeah, as, lo- as long as we're already going down that road, I think it does have value in that role. Yep. Uh, next up, we have Angrath, Captain of Chaos, 2HH, where H is either black or red mana. Legendary Planeswalker Angrath, five starting loyalty. Creatures you control have menace, minus two, a mass two. Eh, I mean, it depends how impactful menace is. We've seen times in the past where like that's the kind of falter effect you're looking for in certain matchups. So I'm sure Angrath can fill that role. Four mana for 
for two two twos and a persistent ability isn't the worst deal I've ever heard. The fact that it has vulnerability kind of throws off that math a little bit, but I could see Angrath having a very specific role in very specific matchups once more, like I keep saying about these Planeswalkers over and over. Yeah, I mean, I think I am more interested in this potentially as a mono-black card where red and red-black have enough powerful four drops, but mono-black doesn't necessarily. So if you're trying to do like zombie-ish things, I mean, the Menace is helpful, the Amass is helpful. If there's a good way to proliferate onto this thing, cool, but mostly probably going to be too weak. Yeah, that's what's interesting about these hybrid Planeswalkers is they're kind of in all cases are offering something to a color that doesn't necessarily have the best version of that effect usually. So maybe they'll have some really niche applications as far as that goes. Yeah. I mean, this is also one of those cards that with like the, I have to look up, I, I want to say Dreadhorde invasion. Yeah. That is the name of the card, the enchantment. It's like, this is one of the things that can help that card get to six power and sure. get that lifelink train going, but very true. Uh, Kiora, Behemoth Beckoner 2H, where H is either a G or a blue. Seven mana starting loyalty. Legendary Planeswalker Kiora. Whenever a creature with power four or greater enters the battlefield under your control, draw a card. Minus one untapped target permanent. I think this card's pretty good. That is a wild, wild amount of loyalty. And uh, as like a ramp spell that comes with some upside. This card is interesting. Uh, multiple activations out of something like Search for Escanta obviously get me very excited. But what this can do for a green deck is pretty impactful too. And having that persistent source of card advantage sitting around could be good enough in combination with the untap clause. It's rampant growth plus engine for three mana. And it's either green or blue. You know, I it seems very strong to me. I don't I don't know if like that sort of deck actually exists or could exist. But if it does, I think... Kiora is there. Would you have played this card in your mono green deck from the Invitational? Uh, I mean, certainly as a sideboard card, but uh, mm-hmm. for for best of one, I don't think so. Okay, it's an interesting one. It's it's even in a world of weirdo planeswalkers, this is one of the weirdest ones, right? A three mana planeswalker with starting loyalty seven that kind of has a somewhat lame minus one, but in the right situations, untapping a permanent. I mean. That's big mana in some spots. Or like I said, an additional search activation. So who knows what decks are able to leverage Kiora effectively. Yeah, I mean, maybe you're just doing like Marwin stuff too, that the Elf Ball deck was around for a little bit when the last set came out. Yeah, that deck would benefit a lot from an untapped trigger. A lot. And then if you get three mana on Incubation Druid, I mean, mm-hmm. got a lot, of, a lot of reasons to actually try and make that happen. Yeah, we'll have to see if Kiora finds a home there. All right, Rolesk Apex Hybrid 2 GGU 4-5 Legendary Creature Human Mutant Flying Trample. When this enters the battlefield, put two plus one plus one counters on another target creature you control. When this dies, proliferate, then proliferate again. That's a lot of power added to the battlefield very, very quickly, uh, just in terms of like a big body in and of itself. And then when it's leaving, it's also doing a lot. It needs to die which is kind of awkward because if this thing's dying, like it has to be to something like cast down. Otherwise it's getting exiled via Vrasco's contempt or everything around it is also dying with something like Kaya's wrath. So I think the triggers are going to be less frequent than you would at first expect reading this card. Like it's not too often where 
Rollesque is going to make all your other creatures huge when it leaves the battlefield. But when it does happen, it'll be very, very impactful. It needs a home. I don't know exactly what that home is right now, but it's an interesting card. And if you're proliferating onto other stuff besides just those creatures you've pumped up, then this card could get real exciting real fast. Yeah, I mean, it's, this kind of puts your opponent in a position where they're, they're damned if they do, damned if they don't, right? Right. Where if they do kill this, you're getting Verdurous Gear Hulk amounts of stuff out of it, which is pretty cool. And then if you have other things with plus one, plus one counters, then you're just kind of going ham. Uh, and then certainly if you have Planeswalkers alongside this, even if they do Kai's Wrath, like you don't really care all that much. So I don't know. Like five mana is a pretty big ask, but Verdurous Gear Hulk also didn't look that appealing to me at first glance. So. I think the Who the knows? question is how hard you have to work for the setup. If the setup is like your deck naturally wants to do the type of things that are going to be paid off by this card, then it can be a real power player. If you have to warp your deck too much around it, then I think the cost is going to be too much. Yeah. It's also worth noting that Simic currently has like the best top end ever in Hydroid Crasses. So like how many of these things do you actually want? Yeah. You also have things like Viv- Vivian Reed, which are just arguably stronger. So it's it's going to be tough. How many five drops can you actually play? <laughs> you have to draw the line somewhere. Yep. Next card is a Johnny the Great Hearted, which I didn't even have on my list. Uh, this is the one card that you made me include. I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, 2G dub, five starting loyalty creatures you control have vigilance, plus one, gain three life, minus two. Put a plus one, plus one counter on each creature you control and a loyalty counter on each other planeswalker you control. So, Such an Johnny hater. Listen, it, it's a it's like a four mana anthem, maybe a double anthem. I don't know. Just seems kind of weak to me. Like maybe this is good enough. I guess if you play like Crow Chamber Guardian or whatever into this thing, it's kind of cool. Yeah, that's cool. And just like the vigilance matters a lot when you're in racing situations. And like you said, it's a double anthem that sticks around even after a Johnny's gone. And I think that it's really hard to get this much life out of a planeswalker. Like I've I've paid larger costs in the past to be able to get three life consistently out of my late game planeswalker. And Johnny's doing some good things in combination with other planeswalkers. Uh, I talked about this in my Ignite the Beacon article today. If we're going to do some super friend stuff, we probably are going to look to a Johnny, one, both to pad life totals in the late game, two, to just get that planeswalker snowball going, get some surprise ultimates. So I, I think this card is fine. I think that is it at its best as like a pure creature enabler? No, I don't think so. I think it has more niche applications than that. But also in that situation, if you're able to generate early battlefield presence, this is a powerful, powerful anthem. Like plus two, plus two over the course of two turns can kill an opponent real quick. True. Just so bad against control. Yeah, not doing a lot there. Almost nothing. But if we're talking about ways to win mid-range mirrors, like certainly that helps. Mm Mm-hmm. Again, maybe another fine sideboard card. So weird how often this keeps coming up. I know, I know. All right, we have Karn, the great creator, four starting loyalty. Uh, Static is activated abilities of artifacts. Your opponent's control can't be activated. If anyone ever shuts down my treasure map with this, I'm going to be so mad. I'm going to shut down all your treasure maps. Jerk. Plus one until your next turn up to one target non-creature artifact becomes an artifact creature with power and toughness, each equal to its CMC. Minus two, you may choose an artifact card you own from outside the game or in exile. Reveal that card and add it to your hand. What the hell is this card? This is a weird one. And 
Number one, you have to think about what kind of toolboxes you can set up with Karn. Obviously, they probably start with like a Sorcerer's Spyglass. There's, of course, the Immortal Sun. Those cards are generally happy chilling in your sideboard anyway. Now you have some main deck access with Karn. The Immortal Sun plus Karn isn't really a combo. I mean, it's kind of a combo, but... It's a bit of a nombo. I actually did that to myself today on Arena. It was fairly painful uh, (laughs) with the the old Karn. But yes, you're right. It it is a bit of a nombo. But still, situationally, you can find homes for it. I I think probably this is just dope in Vintage. Like, accelerating out of Karn might just be game-breaking and enough to steal games on the spot. So we'll see if that does anything there. As far as standard applications, you have to think very carefully about what these toolboxes can achieve. I think its static ability is unlikely to be all that impactful. And that's the biggest knock I have against Karn right now because plus one isn't necessarily what we're trying to do presently. So mostly a pass and standard. But going back to Vintage, I think this might actually be a very important card there. Well, this is like a stony silence for modern Eldrazi, like colorless Eldrazi, I guess, sure. if you want yeah, that you sort that. of thing. Yeah, but yeah, for for standard applications, I I don't know. It's it, like even the artifacts that you could turn into a creature, it doesn't seem like you're going to be making very big creatures. You know, it's like all right, I'll make my scrabbling claws a one one or whatever. I don't know if there's like any big artifacts that you can cheat into play that don't really do much. Could be a plant, Jerry. I'm always suspicious when I see a card like this, and I look at that static ability, and I'm like, eh, this doesn't seem like it's doing all that much right now. But yeah, who knows where we're headed to for the next planes and how much artifacts are going to play a role. I know that Marrow recently blogged about like wanting more colored artifacts in sets. And we saw that here with the the Bolus card. So I, I don't know. I, I always get alarm bells when I see a card that's just like, what is this supposed to be doing right now? Well, maybe nothing is the answer. But in the future, we might have a lot of activated abilities around. All right. Spec on Karns now. You heard it here first. Do it. <laughs> uh onto the lands we have karn's bastion this is just a land that taps for colorless and you can pay four tap it and proliferate uh again colorless eldrazi might be happy to see this i mean putting any ability on a land is a pretty big deal proliferating and amping up planeswalkers is a huge deal things like i think some of the other Interactions are kind of thin and not really worth it on the mana, but four mana to up a planeswalker can almost always be made worthwhile, especially if you have multiples. And then let's not forget about potential anthem effects. So certainly a cost on your mana base if you're already free rolling and very close to monocolored, or you know you're an actual colorless deck, something like colorless Aldrazi and modern. Maybe they'll leverage this card a little bit. It's a cool card, no matter what. Oh, yeah, for sure. What about something like Harden Scales? Could they pick up a copy of Karn's Bastion? Yeah, I think so. They, they're already playing like enough kind of like weak lands. And mm-hmm. I don't know, they, they activate Walking Ballista enough. So it's kind of weird where it's like this is obviously very good if you are winning, you know, and you have like a big board and they all have plus one, plus one counters and stuff like that. But they already have like animation module for that sort of effect. So it's like clearly you get into those those states where, you know, you're making three counters a turn off like Steel Overseer and making three one ones and stuff like that. So like, yeah, this card could certainly help in those spots. Yeah, it's just a question of how free it is. And for that deck, it's generally going to be very, very close to free. Yeah, I, I don't think that making room for one copy is that crazy. Mm-hmm. 
And the last card, Interplanar Beacon. Another land, whenever you cast a Planeswalker spell, you gain one life. Tap, add colorless. Pay one, tap, add two mana of different colors. Spend this mana only to cast Planeswalker spells. So we get a, a weird fixing land that also helps pad your life total for your Super Friends deck, I guess. Yeah, th- this wouldn't have made my list. I I literally built a Super Friends deck in my article today and didn't include Interplanar Beacon. It reads to me as a limited card and one to enable the fact that there's a Planeswalker in every pack and there should be just tons of them floating around. Uh, and this should be a powerful card there. But on the whole, I think you can do better with your mana base in Constructed. If you're doing like goofy five color stuff, maybe you just need to lean on something like this. But uh, I don't think you have to go that far with your Super Friends deck. Someone will prove me wrong and go absolutely ham and all in an interplanar beacon, but uh, I'm passing on this card for now. It just seems unnecessary. Yeah, I basically agree with you. So that's it. Uh, I do think that we have a bunch of exciting stuff. I'm already working on a bunch of deck lists. I'm sure you are too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's surprising how many things reach back to vintage, honestly. That's the biggest takeaway I have from these cards <laughs> is I kept bringing up vintage, and that's not something that happens a lot when we do these spoilers. So, Yeah, fair enough. All right, so... We have a question that uh, comes from Katie. I, I just want to say Handsaker, but I'm sure it's like Handsaker or something like that. I would say Handsaker, but again, just okay. to guess, Katie can correct us when we uh, check back in in the Discord. Katie's great. She's very, or like, you know, fairly active. I, I see her asking questions and stuff all the time in the Discord. So, mm-hmm. and her question is actually really good. Uh, her question is, how good actually is flashing stuff in? Some of these cards, uh, like Vivian, Teferi, and Emergence Zone, for instance, seem easy to overre- overrate just because Flash is sweet. And I agree. It, it is a value add for a lot of these things, and we kind of talked about that with Teferi. With Vivian, I think you get the the guessing game, where it's like you have a card or multiple cards exiled, and... You know, it, it's cute that people might have to like play around things or whatever, but for Emergence Zone, like that wasn't even a card that we talked about because the the cost is like way too high for it. And I don't I don't think it's worth a card. And you would have to think of like some very specific situations where like casting your sorceries as they had flash, like how how relevant is that and how much of a cost are you actually gonna pay? I have one thing to say about how good actually flashing stuff in is, and that is Raph Capuchin, the card that everyone loved when Dominaria came out. Raph decks everywhere. This card's so good. And people quickly figured out that it was not as good as it seemed. You just wanted to play good cards and not rely on flashing them in. Flashing is kind of like easy mode. And in a lot of spots, you're just supposed to set up turns and you're supposed to think ahead and figure out where you're creating these windows on your own because the cost of getting these flash spells into your deck is something like playing a garbage four mana three three or, you know, having one of your lands sacrificed or all these things over and over that are real significant costs to pay. Whereas you can usually set up these situations on your own if your deck is built properly. It's it's going to be cognizant of the fact that you may at some point face counter magic or you may face sorcery speed interaction and you're supposed to build ways to play around that into your deck. Now, if it's something that it just like has value built in, like I said, I think Vivian's a very good card and I could see that absolutely enabling some flash plays, but that's more about 
what's going on around the Flash ability. Having access to that three-mana Planeswalker with a source of card advantage is really what you're sold on when it comes to Vivian, much less the Flash stuff. It's just a little bit of extra value tacked on, I think. So I think I think Katie's right. I think Flash does tend to be overrated. And knowing when it's an, a tool you actually need as opposed to something that just makes things a little easier is a very important thing to consider. Yeah, I agree. Like Raph, if if Raph had a better body, like if Raph was a three four mm-hmm. or four four, something like that, like if it actually did things like block, did not die, yeah, did not die to lightning strike, actually right. like blocked three threes and like traded up and stuff, like then it's like, okay, I'm playing this because it is a flash three four, which is what Restoration Angel was there for a lot of the time, you mm-hmm. know? But yeah, four mana three three is below bar. And the upside that you get is is not worth playing this card that is medium. And I, I definitely feel a lot of that with the reviews uh, that are coming out for like Teferi and Emergent Zone specifically. And Vivian, I, I think, is just good because of the minus two, basically. And the fact that she's a, th- a three mana planeswalker and Teferi has some of that going on, too. But just... Trying to jump through hoops to give your stuff flash is cute and everything. And like you said, it's easy mode. It, it allows you to like not have to make any decisions and you just pass the turn with all your mana open. And yes, that can potentially put your opponent in uh, a spot where they have to make a difficult decision or whatever. But ultimately, if, if they have the luxury of playing around everything, they're going to be able to play around it. And if you're able to just main phase that thing, you probably would win anyway, like we were talking about in the Kaya's Wrath scenario. So, right. Uh, I I would stop going bananas over giving your things flash. Overall, it is uh, basically not worth it unless it comes basically for free. Yeah, I think this was a a really clean, simple, but very perceptive question from Katie. And uh, I think it's something to hold on to as we proceed through the rest of the spoiler season and see what other flash cards we are given. Yeah, I agree. This question is awesome. So who's going to sign us out? Because you didn't do it last week. I have been taking it easy on signouts. I was trying to save my voice as we get ready to head to Cleveland, but mm, I don't fair. I don't want to make you work too hard, Jerry. You just had a a rough go of things at the Mythic Invitational. I'm willing to take on the duties this week and say that's game. Good luck.